Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start closer to home here now with the high-rise building going on in the city, especially in the city of Burnaby. Check this one out now. In Burnaby here... A very large development, proposed 80-story Burnaby high-rise tower. But check out the parking here. 14 levels of underground parking at this high-rise near a SkyTrain station. They need that much parking there in a high-rise like that. Got Burnaby Councillor Allison Goo standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here now. There are a lot of cities are taking a, a second look at some of these minimum parking requirements. They're saying, like, wait a second here now. If we're going to build high-rises near rapid transit, do you need all that parking? Have a listen to this video here. This is from the city of Ottawa. When you decide that all development has to have lots of parking, it creates an environment that's really difficult to walk in or bike or take transit. So naturally, everyone ends up driving. And that means traffic. But it doesn't have to be that way. We're building light rail and bike lanes and neighborhoods where people can walk instead of having to drive everywhere. That means a more livable city, more choices, less traffic, and less need for parking. Okay, less need for parking, but can we really get people out of their cars? Are we addicted to our cars? Let's discuss now with my guest, Alison Goo, Burnaby City Councillor. Very pleased to welcome her. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for, for having me. You bet. Thanks a lot for doing it. So let's first of all, let's talk about this project here. Man, oh man, this is a giant project here. 80-story Burnaby Tower here. Where exactly is this uh, proposed for? So it's going to be right directly uh, across from Low Heat SkyTrain Station. Um, and uh, as as people may or may not know, um, that SkyTrain Station also has connections to both the Expo and the Millennium Lines. So you can really go um, in either the North, north Line or the South Line, um, as well as a, a bus bay for bus connections. Yeah, so this is a giant project. We need these big projects, right? Would you agree that we need we need more housing? It's, is it good to see these big high rises being built? We do need more housing. Um, it you know, eighty towers is not my ideal. Um, I really am looking for actively uh, working on getting more four to six story wood frame apartment buildings built in our city. Um, but the reality is that this project is also generating. 550 units of much-needed non-market rental. Yeah. And uh, it's non-market rental that would be prices at 20% of CMHC median, which, if it were rented out today, would translate to about $1,000 for a one-bedroom, $1,350 for a two-bedroom, and $1,500 for a three-bedroom. And in a housing market where we can barely find a one-bedroom for $1,500, um, this is this is uh, filling a, a, a much-needed um, niche and uh, unfortunately we are faced with difficult uh, decisions to make and um, this is one of them. Yeah boy I'm, I'm sure there are people listening right now listening to some of those potential rents there since sign me up I mean there's so many people looking for affordable decent places to rent in the city so this is a big project here okay councillor let's talk about the parking here because this is the one where you're you're concerned underground parking at this proposed 80-story tower in Burnaby, 14 levels 
of underground parking at this tower. Tell me your your concerns there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Um, I agree that parking is important. Um, you know, some sometimes people can't avoid owning a car, uh, but I think we can all agree, especially in the context of um, the housing crisis in Burnaby and Metro Vancouver, um, that the cost of housing is at least equally or likely more important. Uh, and the reason why the, I bring in the cost of housing is because parking is extremely expensive. And these costs are ultimately passed down to the end consumer, whether you rent or you buy. Um, at normal project excavation levels, it's um, estimated to cost about $50,000 to $100,000 per stall. And that becomes increasingly expensive the further down you dig because um, excavation is, is incredibly expensive. And because these studies that were done on parking costs uh, weren't done on projects 14 levels deep, we don't actually have an idea on how much those lower levels will end up costing. And there's no way that, you know, if you say you live in a building and you, you park on the 13th level, that the cost is going to pass down to you um, more disproportionately than somebody who, who parks on the second level. That cost is going to be redistributed for all residents who live throughout this building. And we know that based off of how deep this project goes, it's going to be likely over $100,000 a stall. That cost is going to be tacked on to these already rising housing costs. And it's a um, demonstration of how the costs of car ownership are often very hidden. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting issue when you take a look at how many levels of underground parking here, 14 levels, as you mentioned, 50 meters deep here to sink in this underground parking, 1,200 and 1,250 vehicle parking stalls underground. Does that, how does that compare to the, like the city has rules on you need a, a minimum number of parking parking spots in a, in a building like this, do you not? And yeah, so um, to, to clarify, it's actually over 2,000 parking oh, spots. Okay. And the reason for that is also outdated policy. Um, yeah. There is um, commercial office building um, units in this building. And so, um, you know, what I'm going to be looking for first is uh, a near elimination of the commercial parking. It's easier to convince somebody to commute to work and um, take transit, especially when it's right across from a SkyTrain station, than it is yeah. to convince a family not to own a car outright. And so those parking spots, those ratios for the commercial parking are actually significantly higher than what we're seeing for um, residential parking. So the parking requirements that are incredibly outdated is that you need one stall per 495 square feet of commercial office space. So that's smaller than a typical one bedroom these days. Um, and what we're seeing is that is generating a huge amount, almost half of the parking that is required in this project is coming from um, people that we assume are going to be commuters. Um, so that's going to be the lowest hanging fruit that we can tackle. Um, and then we can look at how to actually create better alternatives for families and residents um, 
who, who might need to drive at times. We can significantly increase the ratios of car share spots in this project uh, to ensure that, you know, if people want to go out of town or if they need to do their groceries, that they have reliable access to vehicles that they share with others. And currently there are 25 car share parking spots proposed for this project, but we can reduce the total amount of parking spaces, increase the number of car share options available, and then even negotiate with the shared savings um, around things like free car share or uh, even improved affordability in the housing costs that comes from the reduced parking. Okay, Councillor, here's my final question for you. Like, I'm just wondering how realistic it is to expect people to say, okay, I will move in here. I don't need a parking spot because the Lowheed Skytrain station is, is just steps away. Aren't people, like even if people are taking public transit a lot, a lot of people want that freedom, right? They want that flexibility. They want their personal vehicle. So is it realistic to say we can drastically get rid of all these parking spots and people will still flock to this tower? Don't people want their car? I think that there are um, really creative ways and and ways that we can kind of work around some of the parking constraints while, you know, ensuring that people have reduced usage, but recognizing that we may not be there. Um, So we can look at flexibility of Um, you know, sharing a a parking stall. So if somebody needs to drive to work, um, they are often parked there between the hours of nine to five. Uh, If somebody lives in that building, they are likely going to be working or out of their parking stall in those same hours. So how can we be a bit more flexible in making sure that there's not just empty space not being utilized at different hours of the day. One of the issues that I have is outdated visitor parking as well. And all of the visitor parking in my building um, stays unused. And that's partly because you still require a fob to get into underground. So visitors who do do end up visit uh, visiting, they park in the above level parking ground that is supposed to be 30 minutes only. And they often visit for longer, but the reality is that our strata doesn't ticket. And um, mm. those are the uh, spots that get filled up first. So okay. I think there are flexible ways that we can work around that. Okay, we're following this one on the show. Councillor, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Let's talk about the rebate mania here on electric bikes. Now, it was less than two weeks ago that this e-bike rebate program kicked in in British Columbia. Buy an electric bike, get a rebate up to 1400 bucks from the government. What a great deal. And let's just say that this program has been somewhat popular. You check out the government website on this right now. I'm taking a look at it right now. bcbikerebates.ca. This is where you go to apply to get your loot when you buy an e-bike. There's a big button there right on the homepage. Join the wait list. (laughs) It says we are currently only adding names to the wait list on this program. It says please be aware. Being on the wait list doesn't guarantee you will receive a rebate. We will contact you if space opens up in the rebate program. Everybody wants an e-bike rebate. Is it too late to get in on this thing now? Maybe you had to be an early bird here. 
to get the loot. Let's check in with Simon Coots now, owner of Simon's Bike Shop in Vancouver. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Simon. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. Uh, it's great to have you on again. And, and I remember when we spoke a couple of weeks ago about this program, you told me your phone was ringing off the hook, right? Because people were yep. so fired up about this program. Uh, is yep, your phone absolutely. still ringing? Yeah, it's still ringing. Uh, absolutely. Um, you got lots of people calling. Uh, but it, like I said, it, you're right. It's been totally booked up. There's a waiting list now. And there is a bit of a process. But the only really, really good news is uh, manufacturers have stepped up. So Specialized stepped up and said, you know what? So many people have applied and may not get it. Um, so they actually sent us a program as of June 9th. Uh, they've decided to take an, an additional 10% off the bikes. So oh. I, can take the, I can take it off the bikes, and then I apply for a rebate through the cut with the customer to specialize. But they, they walk in, the bike sells for, say it sells for $3,500. They get it for $2,900. That's all they pay. And, the, and then we send in a rebate to the actual manufacturer because the manufacturer um, couldn't believe how popular the program was going to be. And they thought, okay, it's all great. But once uh, it filled up so quickly and the government uh, basically said everyone's on a waiting list and there's so many people that actually came in and said, I want to order electric bike. I want to get it. I want to get the, uh, the rebate. Um, it probably works like on a $3,500 bike. It works out about $500. On a $4,000 bike, it probably works out to $1,000 off the price of the bike. So the manufacturer wow. has stepped up to help out as well because they're okay, very you, excited. Okay, when you say the manufacturer, did you say specialized? Yeah, specialized. The company, yeah. They, 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 were, they were anticipating, uh, like I was anticipating, uh, all these orders to come through. And then when they found out that the program is maxed out and everyone's on a waiting list, you know, they said, you know what, Simon, what are we going to do? Like, they just they had a bit of a brainstorm. And I said, I don't know. But, I mean, it's, it's the system's, like, sort of, uh, I guess, it's, it's overwhelmed the system. And the government's yeah. only offering so many people. So then they said, you know what, we want to sell a lot more electric bikes. What if we offer a, a, some type of rebate? And I said, you know what, that's a fantastic idea. How is it going to work? They said, well, the customer comes in. They basically give all their information, you know, their name, their phone number, their address, that type of thing. It loads yeah. into the computer, and then I can sell them the bike and give them the, give them the, the instantly they get the rebate. Okay, well, it's, specialized. It's yep. Specialized bikes. Those are nice bikes. My my wife oh, has no. one of those specialized bikes. Man, those are those yeah. are nice wheels. Oh no, they're awesome. They're awesome. Yeah. So yeah. And the and the excitement's still there. Like we've we've done it. We've fulfilled quite a few orders already at <clears throat> already at this time like people have been coming in it's it's been a bit of a process because i don't think we can build them fast enough to uh to fulfill all the orders so we're working a little bit more overtime but people are patient and they're super happy to get it and um yeah i mean it's there's still a lot of excitement there's just a little yeah. bit of disappointment because of the um because now they're on a wait list Oh, yeah. Speaking of Simon Coots, Simon's Bike Shop in Vancouver, talking about the waiting list now for an electric bike rebate. What is your understanding, Simon, of this? Like when I go on the government's website, it says click here to sign up on the wait list. We'll let you know. This doesn't guarantee you'll get a rebate. We'll let you know if you, know, if you can still have one. 
Like, are, what is what are you hearing through the grapevine here? Like, if people were too late getting in on this, are they still going to get a rebate down the road here? Um, I think that, I think their their program was so successful that they they basically it's it's like they've only committed I think so much money for the rebate. So I think yeah. I think it's overbooked unless they just the government steps up and says, you know what, let's increase the the amount of money we're going to give out, like uh, the amount of people we're going to give the rebate to. Like I said, I think the first so many thousands of people will get will get the rebate, no problem. And then the manufacturer, maybe another manufacturer might step up as well and do the same. But they seem to uh, they were very very excited when they heard about it, and now they they've seen that. Uh, like I said, it filled up so quickly that yeah. they're trying to they're trying to do something, and I think it's a great it's a great thing they're doing. So yeah, it seems like uh, it could be a victim of its own success here because I I know the government is saying, "Whoa, we didn't think this many people would sign up to to get this," but I don't know why they didn't think that. I mean, people love these things, right? Like when people get on one of these electric bikes, what do what do they tell you when they get on one for the first time? They love it, right? Yeah, well, yeah, love it. You know what? And yeah. some, I've had some older people tell me they feel ten years younger, fifteen years younger, or they're <laughs> they're reliving their youth, right? So, yeah. and who who doesn't want to you know go down, you know, go maybe instead of going a couple of miles, they may go fifteen miles, or they'll go you know around around the seawall out to UBC and back. But it gives them a lot of freedom and mobility. And a lot of the older people, when it comes to a hill, who's excited to ride up a hill? Not many people that excited to ride up some steep hill, right? So it's awesome. Yeah, no, it is, it is pretty cool. Okay, let's let's talk uh, let's talk price point here for a minute. Like you you touched on that briefly. How much should someone expect to spend on a a good quality bike? Well, the other thing the manufacturers have done because believe it or not, they're overstocked, like in in the bikes because. After COVID, everything else, the, you know, the bike sales kind of has flowed. But now with the rebate and the popularity of electric bikes, so a bike normally would have sold for 5000 has dropped to maybe $3,600. Wow. So they've got newer, lower prices, and then they're offering an incentive to buy them as well. So you can get something um, pretty pretty good somewhere between, probably between three and 4000 you get something really, really good, and they come with a, They've got four-year bumper-to-bumper warranty on them, the motors, the electronics. Even in Vancouver, with the rainy weather, um, they perform fantastic. What do you think about, there's been a little bit of controversy here around the, the way this program is set up, because in order to qualify for the rebate, well, first of all, it's means-tested, so your income your income is tested on it. You have a high income, you get a lower rebate, which I don't think is, is bad, but peop, the, you have to buy a bike minimum price $2,000 before taxes, right? So if you buy one that's $2,000 or less, you don't qualify for the, for the rebate. Can you get an electric bike for two grand or under? Um, there are a couple manufacturers that are, are bringing in bikes somewhere between fourteen to $2,500. Um, but again, it's not always you get what you pay for, but sometimes if you get something, you can buy it. And then you, and then you're trying to get a part for it, or trying to maintain it. Um, it might be very, very difficult unless you buy it from an authorized dealer that has the support to fix it or maintain it. Because a lot of times, uh, people buy those bikes and then they 
you know, they're they basically they can't maintain it or they can't get apart or something goes wrong, and then yeah. the bike's aimed useless, right? It's got to be safe, and it's got to be you know it's got to be safe and reliable. That's the key thing. So you do have to spend a little bit more money to get that and buy it off a you know a, a manufacturer that uh, is all certified. Yeah, let me play a clip here for you. This was interesting on Global News the other night. So this is uh, a Vancouver woman, Lorelai Monroe is her name, and she bought. She bought an e-bike for less than $2,000, did not qualify for the rebate. She's a low income, and she's like, you know, I can't afford a more expensive bike. This is what I can afford. How come I can't get a rebate here? So let's listen to what she has to say. You'll also hear from the transportation minister here, Rob Fleming. Let's listen. You know, $2,000 might not be much to, you know, a regular household income, but it's like almost in unachievable odds for someone like me. That was really the price point that the research suggested uh, gave somebody uh, the opportunity to purchase one of these e-bikes uh, with a good battery pack and a, a, and a high consumer rating. Okay, so you heard the, the cabinet minister responsible there saying, well, look, you know, this is the price point we settled on here, $2,000 is the minimum price. And then you heard him mention the battery pack there, Simon, because and isn't that crucial? Like if you buy a cheap bike, you might get a bad battery. You know what? The the uh, the more expensive um, uh, e-bikes have systems, and the systems it's uh, it's like a European standard um, that that even the Canadian standard automatically shut down if there's any problems with the battery. So the battery can't overheat, or the battery can't catch fire. So yeah. when you're talking the you know the expensive e-bikes, there hasn't been a single news article about one of those having any or problems like that but when people take some of the inexpensive e-bikes and then they customize them or they change something on the electronics or they're trying to get more power um, then you can run into some problems and then um, yeah and then it can be very serious and insurance companies won't want to want to insure your place if you've got you know a bike that it's not certified because you leave it in the garage you leave it somewhere else in the house or you leave it plugged in you wouldn't want anything to happen, right? But all the high-end or medium-priced or anything specialized, Trek, Cannondale, any of the major brands all have to pass that safety standard. And that, that has a system in the battery that just shuts it, shuts it off. Which, um, and then you won't have any problem whatsoever. Okay, Simon, where is your bike store? Uh, it's uh, Robson and Homer. It's at Library Square. It's 345 Robson Street. Uh, we're open every day except Christmas Day. I got to go to my other job on Christmas Day, but uh, <laughs> other than that, we're there all the time. Okay, last last question for you: What do you recommend for people who may be feeling a little disappointed, like, "Oh man, I should have applied for this rebate right off the bat. Now I'm stuck on this waiting list." Would you encourage people to go on the government website and just sign up on the wait list anyway? Just wait it out. Uh, I would say yes, do that, yeah. but at the same time. You can go now, and I said manufacturers have decided to step up. Yeah. And they're now, they're now crediting back the retailers, so they're okay. giving credit of up to 10%. So when you go buy a bike, you'll probably get an additional 10% off the price of the bike right when you go to purchase it, and the 10% will be paid back by the manufacturer. So you can still get that e-bike. You can still get a great deal on it and, and not have to you know, spend too much time on a waiting list, um, 
you can just walk right in and try and get one of the bikes that they have on, on the list of bikes that the manufacturer is now doing the deal on. Simon, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, let's talk about the speeding crackdown by police. Now, police are always looking for lead foot drivers all year round. Recently, there was a crackdown on speeding. I got Paul Doroshenko, traffic lawyer, standing by. Let's have a listen to Superintendent Dale Carr, BC Highway Patrol. This month, I can tell you, they're going to be absolutely focused on speed-related offenses. Yeah, they're coming to get you there. They're looking for speeders, and there's lots of different ways a traffic police can nab a lead foot driver, especially in the good old speed trap. Now, where do police set up to catch speeders? Now, you'd think at the bottom of a hill, right? Is That's one of the classic spots. You catch those drivers, it's force of gravity, but there are other places police speed uh, can set up to catch speeders, too. Okay, let's check in with Paul Doroshenko, now traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Very pleased to welcome him back. Paul, thank you for coming on. Yeah, nice to speak with you, Mike. Okay, so let's talk about uh, speed traps here now. Now, I want to play a clip here for, for you from your, your colleague there, Kyla Lee. I encourage everyone to follow her on social media. So this is her latest viral video here on, on TikTok where she's talking about some of the things that she will never do behind the wheel of a vehicle, especially now that she knows the law and how the police operate. Now, here's one that she describes here. Speeding, okay, speeding while you're going uphill. For, forget about going downhill where the police might catch you. How about going uphill? Let's have a listen to her thoughts, and I'll get your thoughts. Here's Kyla. I won't speed uphill. I know the temptation is there because you think if you're going downhill, the police are going to be at the bottom of the hill waiting for you, watching for speeders, you're accelerating, gaining speed, gravity, etc. Sure, sure, they do that. But they also wait at the top of hills. And when they wait at the top of hills, it's even worse because you can't see them as you crest the hill, but they've already measured your speed and they know that you were speeding up the hills. Okay, don't speed going up the hill. Paul, do you agree with Kyla there? Well, don't speed, period, I guess. Oh, yeah, don't <laughs> speed anyway. Issue. Yeah. But uh, yeah. if you're going up the hill, a lot of people, you know, you're on the hill, you're thinking to yourself, you know, the police are not going to be there because they're at the top of the hill, and most of the people are not going to speed, and I'm going to be the one person who speeds and gets away with it because it's so exciting, the thrill of, you know, putting the pedal down and feeling my car with its, its so many horsepower capable of pulling up this hill. So people make this mistake regularly, and as Kyla says, like, you get to the crest of the hill, the police officer sees you long before you get a chance to take your foot off the gas. Um, and their cruiser is parked maybe, you know, five meters further down the road. So you don't see it either. And next thing you know, you're caught. And I mean, I, I know the reason that Kyla uh, mentioned that. And it's because we get so many people who are caught on the Coquihalla uh, coming up hills. And, you know, they end up going to traffic court and merit. Um, the, uh, the, the, the BC Highway Patrol is now sort of reconsolidated and reorganized, and, and those officers are so well trained to do it. And that's where they are. And it's also a very safe spot for them, because usually mm. at the top of the hill, there's this large open space where they can, they can see all around them. They can get the cars pulled over safely. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a very common enforcement technique to go to the top of the hill and get all of those people who think they're going to get away with something. Yeah, and she also mentioned there that the visibility for the driver going up the hill, you may not see that police officer there just over the crest of that hill. But by the time they catch you, 
Like, is your goose pretty much cooked at that point? Like, I've often thought, okay, if I'm driving on the highway, I got my eyes peeled just in case I see any radar. But, I mean, do a lot of times when drivers get caught, they don't even see the police officer that's clocked them? Well, they see it when it's too late, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. A police officer there with a, with a laser device. These are handheld devices now. Remember, the old ones all had to be tripod mounted. The new ones are handheld. They're hard to target at those at those far distances. But a police officer is a very small, uh, you know, thing on the horizon as you pull up, and and you can have the, the best eyesight ever, and but still, that police officer with that very low profile, just their little head poking over the horizon with their uh, with their laser device pointed at you, you know, they've got you. Uh, they've got a speed estimate when they first see you. They've, they've uh, activated their device. They've got a speed reading. They are confident about it. And by the time you get to them, you know, they've practically got your ticket written up. Yeah, and can you challenge that in court? Like once they've clocked you on one of those handheld laser or radar devices, does that, they pretty much got you red-handed? You're innocent until proven guilty. You're entitled to have a trial. You can go to court and you can test the evidence. Lots of times police officers will come to court and, Frankly, they just can't present the evidence to the to the level that's necessary to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. It's the same beyond a reasonable doubt standard, right, as a, as a murder trial. I often explain to people, you know, we're conducting a speeding ticket trial. It's all the same principles as a murder trial. The police officer has to take the witness stand. The police officer has to testify. The police officer is cross-examined. And, yeah. you know, the defense is not uh, obliged to raise a reasonable doubt. They've got to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, let's listen to another one from your colleague Kyla Lee here in her, her latest viral video here. So this is another one. She says that she has learned since she has become a traffic lawyer stuff she will never do behind the wheel. And this one is not passing another vehicle if you have to swerve into oncoming oncoming traffic, which technically you can do in some cases, but she says she does not do it. Let's listen. I will definitely not pass cars on a roadway that requires me to go into the oncoming lane of traffic. And yes, this is lawful many places, but I have read way too many files where that results in accidents ranging from minor to horrific. Okay, what would be the circumstances, Paul, where you could pass another vehicle, even if you're you're now in the oncoming, there's an oncoming lane of traffic? So that would be like a, well, like a dotted line? Yeah, anywhere on the highway where there's a dotted line and there's thousands yeah. of kilometers of that highway in this province uh and kyla's right you know we get these files uh somebody pulls out to pass and you know you don't see the fact that on the other side of the highway uh there's a a, a road connecting and somebody turning right and suddenly they're on the oh. oncoming lane at you you know yeah. or or you you pull out to pass and the person beside you decides they're going to be a jerk uh and speed up and and create a huge risk for you or you pull out to pass and you're you know, there's three cars ahead of you and it looks like you're all good. And it turns out the car at the front is turning left. Um, you know, these, these things happen. And it's a, it's a, it, one wonders that, that this is the way that we've designed our roads because there's so many collisions like this and they're bad accidents every time because everybody's moving very quickly. And so it's a little bit terrifying, uh, you know, passing in those circumstances. And a lot of Kyla, Kyla just doesn't do it now. She waits until there's yeah. a passing lane. 40 kilometers ahead or what have you, uh, which is probably the safest thing to do. But, uh, you know, you're still entitled to pass if it's if it's uh, clear and uh, it's a dotted line and it's safe to do so. Let me let me things, ask you. Things change, though, as you're driving, right? Yeah. Let me ask you about uh, BC's impaired driving laws here, which are among the, 
the strictest in the country here. Now, again, like you said earlier, that if you don't want to get a speeding ticket, just don't speed, okay? Slow down. An- another good piece of advice is don't don't drink and drive, okay? Don't have any, don't drink anything, get behind the wheel. But here's the thing, though. You are allowed, like it is, elite, it is legal in British Columbia uh, to have like, what, one drink and then you can, you're still legal to drive? Is that correct? Well, it, it depends on your body weight uh, and your yeah. gender. Uh, for, you know, most women can have one standard drink, uh, and they're fine. They're still under under fifty milligrams and in uh, hundred milliliters, and they're they're not impaired. Uh, you know, a lot of women can have more than that and not be impaired, uh, but their blood alcohol concentration might you know get into the point where you're you're prohibited from operating a motor vehicle. For men, most men can drink two drinks and still be well under fifty milligrams. Uh, and not impaired in their ability to drive, and that's completely lawful. I mean, we sell alcohol. We know that people drink. You just have to uh, you have to drink responsibly, and you can't drive if you're if you're impaired. Right. But of course, you know you can go out for dinner, and you can have a couple glasses of wine with dinner, and be not impaired and well under fifty milligrams, and get in your vehicle and and drive away. There's nothing unlawful about that. Okay, but here's the risky thing that she points out. What if you you have even just one drink? And then you immediately get behind the wheel of of a vehicle. Can a breathalyzer machine register a false positive if it detects alcohol? Because you've just had you only had one drink, but if you just consumed that drink like ten minutes earlier, and you just got behind the wheel, can you get a false positive on a breathalyzer? A hundred percent. And people don't understand yeah. how these devices work, right? Uh, and, and that's one of the, the biggest problems I see in, in this is that people end up getting driving prohibitions that they shouldn't have got because they don't understand that that recent drink that they've had uh, is going to taint the sample. So the device that you're blowing into has no capacity to detect where it's getting the air from, where it's getting the alcohol from. So if it's alcohol from your mouth, it's highly concentrated. If you just have a drop, a tiny, this little bit of, of alcohol in your mouth, you can even get it from Kikoman soy sauce, for example, uh, then it's going to register that and it can't differentiate it from the alcohol in your lungs. And this is one of the huge risky parts of this legal scheme that we've got is that we're hoping that people don't have any alcohol in their mouth. But if they've got braces, if they had oh. were chewing gum while they had alcohol in their mouth, if they've got dentures, if they've got there's so many different ways that you can, you can burp, right, and regurgitate alcohol from your stomach, then it's in your mouth, you blow into one of these devices, it has no capacity to detect where that alcohol is coming from. And, you know, to me, that it's hugely risky, and I think if the people of British Columbia knew just how risky this was, they wouldn't be quite so confident about this system. Uh, the devices back at the detachment, you know, the big breathalyzer, the detachment, it has the capacity. It's not perfect, but it has the capacity to detect the presence of mouth alcohol. Uh, but the roadside devices don't have it. Not a single roadside device in Canada can do that. Okay. So every time you're potentially blowing, it can be a false reading. All right, let's talk about the cost of tying the knot now. The price tag for a wedding can be absolutely eye-watering now. Everything is going up, 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 from venues to photographers to catering to wedding dresses. Also, the cost to attend a wedding 
getting pricey as well. Let's say you're a bridesmaid, for example. Well, that's quite an honor to be asked by your friend to be a bridesmaid in a wedding, right? Get set to pay up. Yeah, here comes the bride. Here comes the bill, too. This can cost a ton of money. Got some great guests standing by in this. Okay, have a listen to wedding planner Emma McCormick on an earlier show about the average cost of a wedding these days. Have a listen. Like the average cost in Canada of a wedding in 2019 was 29000 Canadian. Wow. So we've definitely gone up since then. Um, I would say on average, um, we're kind of around the forty to 50000 mark. Um, there are definitely clients who do it for a lot less, and we definitely have clients who do it for a lot more. Um, but to really throw a wedding, and that's without a ton of the extras, um, clients are really looking at kind of committing around a $40,000 budget to their celebration. All right, here we go now with the cost of a wedding. And in this era of inflation, you know everything is going up, up, up. The cost of getting married, no exception. In fact, the cost of a wedding inflating to eye-watering numbers. We talked about this on the show before. The cost of a wedding now has soared. People will spend 30000 40000 $50,000 on a wedding. People are spending a fortune. Now, what if it's not your wedding? What if you're just invited to the wedding? What if you have the happy occasion to be asked to be a bridesmaid at a wedding? Well, this costs a lot of money, too. Let's discuss now with my guest, Stephanie O'Connell-Rodriguez. Stephanie is the host of the podcast, Money Confidential. Very pleased to welcome her. Stephanie, thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's talk about, first of all, the cost of a wedding is just, these numbers are super surprising to me. Maybe they shouldn't be. People are really spending this much (laughs) on a wedding overall, like 40, 50,000 bucks? I can tell you from experience that the way this happens is through the creep of wedding planning. You start out with, okay, here's a venue I found that's reasonable or a caterer I found that's reasonable. And then you find out that ice is going to cost you another $200 and coffee is going to cost you another $300 and cake, even if you bring your own, to have it cut is an extra $100. And so these costs escalate and escalate. And of course, in this inflationary environment, of course, coming out of the pandemic as the services sector was really hard hit and is now really recovering with this pent up demand, you're seeing those costs go even higher. And so it escalates really quickly. And the final piece of this, of course, is social media, where everything is a comparison. So the idea of what a wedding looks like is often this very standard image of something that is much, much more expensive than people realize. Oh, yes. I've heard about this. You have to have the Instagram moments at your wedding, right? So everything's got to be perfect for social media, and that can cost a lot of money. Absolutely. Things like decor, things like flowers, things like you know these little details of favors or uh, place cards, that can ask, add up to hundreds or even thousands of extra dollars and things that are really discretionary costs. Yeah. And for I think for sure there is also a pent up demand, right? Because so many weddings were delayed during pandemic and so many weddings were put off. And now there's this surge of weddings. We were talking to a wedding planner on the show recently said her phone is just ringing off the hook because people want people are getting married now. They put it off during the pandemic. So does that sort of uh, increase demand? I mean, supply and demand, right? It drives up prices. 
absolutely. Yeah. yeah, of course it drives up prices. And then also you have to consider the vendor's additional cost. So if you're a caterer, that that means that, you know, you, you, inflation has really brought up your food prices to deliver the service. The cost of labor has gone up to deliver the service. So part of it is just baked into the higher cost of everything. And part of it is this pent up demand. So one of the ways you can get around pent up demand in a way you can't really get around inflation is by trying to get married on a, uh, a day that's less high in demand. So not on a weekend. Of course, that presents other challenges. As you mentioned, you know, being a guest at a wedding can be very expensive as it is. And if you have to take days off of work now, to attend somebody's midweek wedding because they're trying to save money, that might cost you more <laughs> by missing work. So there's a lot of competing things that, that, that it's really hard to manage when it comes to the money side of all of this. Yeah, for sure. Now, let's talk a little bit about those extra costs. Like, let's say you're a, a guest of honor at the wedding. Let's say you're a bridesmaid, okay? Very happy occasion. You're asked to be a bridesmaid at your friend's wedding. Oh, boy, how much can this cost? I mean, that the price tag for that can start to really creep up really fast too, right? Well, it's so tough when you're asked to be a bridesmaid because you don't actually know what you're agreeing to typically when you sign up, when you're like, yes, you're my best friend. I would love to be your bridesmaid. You don't get an invoice that says, okay, this is going to be $3,000 between all the gifts the dress, the jewelry, the bachelorette party, everything else that go the wedding shower and the gift, you know, everything that goes with it. And it's all these ancillary events that really drive up the cost. So that can create this really big stressor, especially depending on what life stage you're in. I remember some of the first weddings I went to, I was in my early 20s. I had very little or no disposable income at the time. So that was a lot more stressful than the weddings I went to two years ago where I was a bridesmaid because by that point, I was in my late 30s. Everybody had a lot more free time, free income, and so we were happy to spend more. So there's a lot of different factors at play. Okay, let's let's break down a, a few of those input costs there that you listed. So let's say you're asked to be a bridesmaid. Okay, let's talk about the bridesmaid dress, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, the bridesmaid dresses are famous for. <laughs> I want. I don't want to say ugly, <laughs> but uh, how much can a bridesmaid's dress cost? It can really, really range. So a bridesmaid's dress could cost fifty bucks. Or it could cost $1,000. And this is what makes this so stressful is you just don't know what you're getting into. It's also one of the reasons I decided not to have bridesmaids at my wedding. I did take pictures with my girlfriends. We did all have, they did all look beautiful, but they all just wore their own clothes and we had a good time. And I didn't need them to spend the extra, you know, $100,000, $200,000 in matching outfits to prove their friendship. Now, I don't want to be moralistic about it. Everybody needs to do what works for them. But I found, you know, by the time I got married, I was in my mid-30s. I had been through a lot of weddings, and I just found it was more of a stressor, not just for the people involved, but also for the bride, because then that adds up even more costs, because you got to get your bridesmaids gifts and things like that. So I just think it's important that when people start planning they take into account the full picture from the start as opposed to getting into this place where you're like, ah, it's just this one expense to start. And then it adds up and it cascades so quickly that you feel out of control. And that's where things get sticky. Okay, that is very interesting, your your own experience there. And so when you decided that you were not going to have bridesmaids at your wedding, 
did how did your friends feel about that? Were they like, oh, were they a bit relieved that they weren't going to face those costs, or were they kind? Of, was anybody disappointed, or how did that work out? My guess is that they were relieved, but let's be <laughs> honest, I was the bride, so nobody's going to come up to me and tell me they think I'm making horrible decisions, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. But I will say, like, there are some aspects that we still did, you know, we, I still, we all got ready together in my hotel room. We all took photos together. We did all of these things. It just didn't have that structure of to be a bridesmaid means you have to wear a matching dress and have your hair professionally done or have your makeup professionally done. And I think what this is more about rather than saying this is the right or wrong way to do something is to really remind everybody, like, what is your value system? What do you think your wedding is for? And what do you want that gathering to mean? And the people you want to be involved, what do you want them to experience? And what do you want to experience? And oftentimes, we have this idea of what that should look like. And the financial stressors, I think, can sometimes get in the way of what it is we actually want to experience. And so for me, I really wanted to experience a sense of community and a sense of uh, like casualness and fun. And I knew I wasn't going to feel that if it was all about people stressing out about looking the same and like having a hair schedule to get 10 girls hair and makeup done before 1 p.m. and pictures starting. Right. So this is the kind of stuff to consider. Yeah. OK, that's very interesting. Speaking to Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez, host of the Money Confidential podcast, the inflating cost of, of a wedding. You mentioned the uh, the bridesmaids uh, bachelorette trip. Right. How common is that? Like the every all the friends get together for a bachelorette. Hey, let's go to Vegas for a little bachelorette getaway before the wedding. <laughs> that can start adding up. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And I will say this is certainly not limited to the bridesmaids. This, it right. happens with the yeah, groomsmen, yeah. too. I did, I'd say costs are even maybe even more sometimes <laughs> among the groomsmen. Um, but this is incredibly common. You know, a bachelorette party, I think, typically used to be thought of as a night out or a dinner. Uh, and that has now really cascaded into these multi-day, often destination getaways. Often there's, you know, matching swag, there's activities, there's flights, there's hotels. So really what you're ultimately talking about is a group vacation, which can actually be a lot of fun. But the way weddings typically work is that they tend to cluster at a certain life stage. And if you have a friend group, you can find yourself going to five of these in the course of a year. And that is, again, just incredibly financially stressful. And that's why it, this, this kind of stepping back and making an assessment of the full picture is really important. And also, I think if you're somebody who, who's in the planning part of the process, whether you're a maid of honor who's deciding where this event is going to take place or how, or your bride who's deciding, I think it's also important to consider every, that everyone has different financial resources and means. And this is really important. If you want to prioritize the people who are at the occasion, I think you need to plan around build, making sure that what you're budgeting for works for everybody. But if you want to prioritize going to Vegas and having this fabulous experience and activity, that's fine. But then you cannot expect that everyone will be able to attend. Okay, some great advice there, Stephanie. Thank you for sharing it today. Really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez there. I recommend Stephanie's podcast, Money Confidential. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.